Tonight's talk is about the Four Noble Truths. We all have this deep yearning for freedom. I think of us sometimes as um, wild horses uh, corralled and domesticated. But they say that when you take wild horses and, and capture them, that they're you can see in their eyes that they, um, they remember freedom and that there's this spark there. And I think that we all have this uh, spark within us, this wish for uh, our freedom. We wouldn't be here if we didn't have that. The Buddha's teachings are about uh, what this corral is what this imprisonment is, and how we can regain our freedom. After his enlightenment, uh, the Buddha taught his first discourse, and it's said to be this one, on the Four Noble Truths, and that it um, elucidated his pretty much his entire teachings. So the hope is that this talk will be a synthesis of all the different um, aspects uh, that we've been talking about during the week. The Four Noble Truths is basically about um, imprisonment and freedom, or suffering and the end of suffering. So the Four Noble Truths are, uh, there is dukkha. Greg talked a lot about this word the other night. There's dukkha. Usually generally translated as suffering, but that's a very narrow translation. There's dukkha. There is a cause of dukkha. There is the end of dukkha. And there's the path leading to the end of dukkha. Sometimes it's said that um, the Buddha was a supreme physician. He named the illness, the cause of the illness, the medicine to take, and how to take it. So you could say that we're here taking our medicine um, that will help us free our hearts and minds. Mostly tonight I'll be talking about the first three noble truths. Sometimes I've thought this talk should be 75% of the noble truths talk. (laughs) Um, I'll just briefly mention the fourth one and probably we'll hear more about that in the next couple of days. So the first noble truth is the truth of dukkha, which is translated, as I said, sometimes as suffering or unsatisfactoriness, discontent, stress. And the Buddha said that this truth must be seen. In this first discourse of the Four Noble Truths, Uh, The Buddha has a very, I think, a brilliant analysis of um, suffering, a very um, penetrating, in-depth exposition on the theme. And each layer is more subtle than the one before, so I'm going to read from the discourse. Birth is suffering, old age is suffering, sickness is suffering, death is suffering. Sorrow, lamentation, and despair are suffering. Contact with what is unpleasant and separation from the pleasant are suffering. 
Not getting what one wishes is suffering. In brief, clinging to the five aggregates of the personality, body, feeling, perceptions, volitional formations, and consciousness, as possessions of myself, is suffering. So I'll explain a little bit more what that means. That last part, for those of you who haven't studied much Buddhism, might have been a little bit um, confusing, but we'll, we'll get into it. So dukkha. Dukkha is something that we usually try to avoid. We try to avoid the, the, the reality of dukkha. I found a cute, interesting quote recently by somebody named Jane Wagner. She says, I made some studies... And reality is a leading cause of stress among those in touch with it. (laughs) I can take it in small doses, but as a lifestyle, I found it too confining. (laughs) So, basically, we try to deny the truth of dukkha, and um, we pay a price for our denial. Denying hasn't made us happier. We pay the price with anxiety and depression, mind-numbing entertainment, a constant need for stimulation and busyness. But facing it, seeing it clearly, is the way out. It's noble. It's a noble truth. So we'll look at a little bit about these, these three kind of ways the Buddha talked about dukkha. The first kind was um, suffering as it's conventionally understood. The body, the mind. Um, We've taken birth in these human bodies and we suffer bodily aches and pains. Most wouldn't argue with this. We have to deal with these bodies that at best are a lot of work to take care of and at worst um, are, are painful illness. And we all suffer old age, well, unless we die unexpectedly, but we all suffer death for sure. And then there's dukkha dealing with our minds. Oh, so much difficulty, right? Even in a normal human life, there's so much trouble and uh, stress with sorrow, lamentation, and despair, as the Buddha put it. But the next part of the equation goes deeper into this problem. This is where the Buddha started to really specialize. Contact with what is unpleasant and separation from the pleasant are dukkha. Not getting what one wishes is dukkha. The modern version is the Rolling Stones. You can't always get what you want. This is suffering based on living in a world of change. Life just doesn't always go the way we want. And with this um, aspect of dukkha, we begin to see that even what is pleasant contains the seeds of dukkha because of impermanence. The Buddha didn't deny that life has many beautiful moments, but he said that even them are tinged with dukkha because they will end. And we can't hold on. So this is where we begin to translate dukkha as unsatisfactoriness or unreliability. 
that things of this world can't provide ultimate satisfaction for us because they are unreliable, they change. The last part of the equation about the five aggregates um, of existence and um, clinging to the aggregates is dukkha. Basically, when the Buddha talked about these five aggregates, form, perception, consciousness, basically it's just one way that he divided up all of life. So basically, it's all the experiences of mind and body. When we um, contract around these experiences, these changing experiences of mind and body, that's dukkha. I'll give you the tiniest um, taste of what that might mean. If you want, you can try a little experiment. Uh, Think of, maybe think of an afflictive emotion or difficult emotion that you can readily bring to mind. So I'm going to use example of anger. So say to yourself, I am angry, or I am blank. And just feel what that feels like inside of your mind, heart, body when you say that. So for example, I am angry. Feel the flavor of that. And now try saying anger or whatever is happening. Anger is happening. And feel what that feels like in the heart and the body, mind. So you may have noticed a difference between those two experiences. The first one, I am angry, when we're um, identifying with an experience of the body, uh, there's, there's more of a sense of contraction, narrowness, dukkha. And then when we can say anger is happening, we may have noticed that there is a loosening of contraction, that there is um, more spaciousness, This would be when there's less identification and less attachment. Anger is happening. Anger is an experience, a changing experience of body and mind that arises and passes away. So that contraction that happens when we take experiences, to um, the passing experiences of body, heart, and mind to be me, our mind, is that sense of contraction, which is called clinging and the Buddhist teachings. So you can see that each level is a little more subtle. So what do we do with this truth of dukkha? Our practice suggests that we actually turn towards it. As the Buddha said, to see it. Now this may go against our conditioning. We live in a culture that um, specializes in avoiding suffering. I read somewhere that um, somebody said, the true religions of America are optimism and denial. (laughs) (laughs) Another thing I read, America, a country where everything is done to prove that life isn't tragic. 
it makes me think sometimes of one big dysfunctional family <laughs> where there's um, difficult things going on and, and, we, and we don't talk about it. And then another way that we deny it is um, we think that if we're suffering, it's a personal deficiency. You know, like there's something wrong with us. It's our fault. It's, a, it's another kind of cultural myth. But the Buddha said, dukkha happens. The first time I read uh, about Buddhism and um, the, uh, the, read about suffering according to Buddhism, I was um, enormously relieved. I thought it was um, just great to read. It was like finally somebody's talking about the way it is. So I love talking about dukkha. We're getting real about what's happening. So obviously, so we come on retreat, right, and we stop um, running and we sit down and we um, often see a fair amount of dukkha. But we really want to engage with um, the suffering that comes up in a way that frees us and liberates us, right? Not get lost in it. So when we come here and we see dukkha, this is actually considered good news. It means that we're seeing um, what the problem is so we can do something about it. Thomas Merton said, if I'm called to the solitary life, so this week, right, our two weeks, solitary life, If I am called to the solitary life, it does not necessarily mean I will suffer more acutely in solitude than anywhere else, but that I will suffer more effectively. (laughs) So we hope this week that you're suffering effectively, (laughs) meaning that you're learning. You're learning from it. To have a well-balanced, well-grounded spiritual life, we have to know how to suffer effectively. We have to be willing to get a little muddy, a little dirty, turning towards dukkha. So, the second noble truth, what causes dukkha? What causes suffering? The Buddha said that this must be understood. Conventional wisdom has it that we suffer because we, um, we um, don't have enough pleasant experiences in our life and we have unpleasant experiences, right? But the Buddha said that the cause of suffering is um, impali tanha, which translates as craving or thirst. That word thirst implies um, kind of the strength of craving or the desperation, I think. Another way I've heard it described is shackles in the heart. Shackles in the heart. So we are imprisoned by our wanting. And we're talking about the kind of desire that wants something for me. So, um, um, self-centered desire. 
And we, and we suffer because we rebel against the way things are in this universe of change. So this craving or thirst is for things to be different than they are. And this is based on a misconception about the way this world is, a misconception that we can um, find happiness through control. We only have to meditate for about five minutes to see how, um, how we want pleasant experiences to stay and how we crave them and how we want to avoid and push away unpleasant experiences. It's very um, deep conditioning. We'll see if we watch our minds long enough that that's the basic theme. How can I find and keep pleasantness and how can I get rid of unpleasantness? And we see that, that, that this basic strategy for finding happiness um, narrows and contracts the heart and the mind. That's dukkha. And that there's a sense of restlessness with that search. One time we were teaching in Burma, and um, this woman asked this question. It was so poignant during the question and answer period. She said, where can we rest? And I think that's a question we all have somewhere deep inside. Where can we rest? Because if we're going to try to be happy in this world through the endless pursuit of pleasant and the endless avoidance of unpleasantness, there is not going to be any rest. That's dukkha. So this, this craving or thirst is based on a lack of wisdom about the way things are. And that's why we put so much emphasis in practice on really looking at the way things are. So this craving is based on, um, it's called ignorance or delusion in Buddhism. So the, the taking as permanent what's impermanent. The taking um, as controllable what is uncontrollable the taking as self what is a flowing river of change. So the, the number one thing we need to understand is that it all changes. That's why we keep coming back to impermanence. This is the basic law of this universe. This is how our world is. And the Buddha said that we really need to understand this in order to free the heart and mind. So I'm fascinated. I like to watch when like something obviously changes and um, I'm not happy about it. I get so interested in what my mind does. So like let's say it's um, let's say it's I'm working on a Dharma talk at IMS and it's 7.15. I'm about to print it out. This has actually happened. <laughs> and I'm about to print it out and the printer isn't working. <laughs> so the first thing the mind um, kind of does is its first denial, right? It's like, no, it's not true. You know, really, it's like, it's really, you know, it's like somewhere we think that if we really believe it's not true, it won't be true, right? So then there's, and then after the not true, there's a reactivity. There's like, no, I don't want it to be this way. 
we can get interested in this. <laughs> because we live in this realm of change, um, things aren't always going to go the way we want, right? And we're going to experience a full range of joy and sorrow, working computers and crashing computers, all of it, in this wild, um, beautiful, mysterious world of change, unknowable world of change. The first time I heard this teaching was in my eighth grade science class. And um, I still remember the moment because it made an impact on me. Um, I was standing in the lab room and the science teacher said, the only thing constant is change. I didn't know then that that was what the Buddha taught. (laughs) Maybe he was Buddhist, it's possible. One Zen teacher said that there's 7,000 instances in a second or 6.5 billion instances of life in 24 hours. The Buddha said, I think, even a greater number. That's a lot of change. It's fast, very fast. But we only have to look at our day here to know, too, this truth of change. One hour we sit and it's pleasant and... We've got it made, right? And then the next hour we come in and our back hurts or we're restless or we're sad. So if we take our refuge or take our happiness in any um, conditions of this world, if we, if we make that our refuge, um, there will be dukkha. It doesn't mean we can't enjoy what's pleasant. Definitely, we can. But if we take this as our solving the, the question of how we're going to find peace, then we are in trouble. And as I said, this endless search for, for happiness in this way is um, itself stressful because the answer always seems to be just out of reach. It's always somewhere in the future. A student once asked the Zen teacher, Steve Allen, if you were given a wish-fulfilling jewel, what would you wish for? He said, to stop wishing. I uh, used to be the Buddhist advisor at Mount Holyoke College, a women's college nearby here. And one day I was talking to the young women and I said, you know, Buddhist truth that everything changes. I said, so what? You know, why, why does that matter? And one of the young women answered, she said, because that is pretty much the way it is, and if you have issues with this, you need to deal with them. <laughs> Which I think it just sums it up really beautifully. <laughs> we all have issues with change, and basically that's what you're doing here. You're dealing with them. So the second noble truth, the truth of um, the cause of suffering being thirst or craving, contraction around experience, wishing it for it to be different, and the underlying um, ignorance of not understanding this world of change. 
And then the Buddha had the third noble truth, which is the truth of the end of suffering, the end of dukkha. That we have the capacity to free our hearts and our minds, that there is release from this imprisonment. And this is what meditation is about, learning the way to the freedom from suffering or dukkha, releasing the shackles in the heart. So what is freedom or nibbana or enlightenment? It's some confusion in this uh, society. The word um, nirvana or nibbana in um, Pali is thrown out, uh, are thrown out and around quite a bit. Here's someone from Meidel. <laughs> complete relief, complete nirvana. Meidel helps you get rid of your symptoms so you can get on with your life. All you need is my doll. <laughs> Here's some flooring product. Nirvana, an ultimate experience of some pleasurable emotion such as harmony or joy. Still missing the mark. <laughs> Because the freedom that the Buddha talked about is unconditional. So the Buddha said that the goal of his practice, or this practice, is the unshakable liberation of mind and heart. I love that phrase, the unshakable liberation of mind and heart. So if we talk about enlightenment or nibbana, in different traditions there are different interpretations. And it's talked about in different ways at different times. But all of the traditions and all the ways agree on one um, basic truth about enlightenment or freedom and that it is the release of clinging or holding on or contraction. It's the abandonment of clinging, contraction. We could think of Nibbana as the unfettered, unconstricted heart and mind. But you have to understand that when we begin to talk at this point, it's no longer personal. Suzuki Roshi, somebody once asked him, what is Nibbana? And he said, seeing one thing through to the end. And I think he meant that understanding the, the, the riddle or conundrum of existence so deeply and so thoroughly that there is release from the bondage or sense of imprisonment. Nibbana is wordless. It's always present. And it's not separate from life. So it's not something separate that we can gain and then appropriate somehow because that's not its nature. It's not personal. The Buddha said it is to be realized. So think of this word, to realize something. When we realize something, the truth was always there and then we see it. It dawns on us. 
So you could say that Nibbana dawns on us. Freedom must be realized, and each moment offers us the opportunity to explore this question. And the only way we really learn freedom is in the raw material of our lives, here and now. So to understand freedom, we must develop a down-to-earth connectedness to the moment. The Buddha taught that the closest quality to Nibbana that we can talk about, sometimes called the doorway to Nibbana, is equanimity. It's the closest um, freedom before we get into the realm of wordlessness. So what is equanimity? It's the mind that is at peace with the way things are that can accept with grace and poise and inclusivity the full range of life's experiences without grasping, without aversion, seeing clearly, connected. So we could say that any moment that the mind is freed of greed, clinging, aversion, ignorance or delusion, not seeing things the way they are, is a moment of freedom. Equanimity is unconditional acceptance of the moment as it is. No conditions attached. Things don't need to be a certain way to feel peace. And we can see that in a world of change, this is a very convenient and useful kind of peace, one that doesn't have conditions. Basically, with equanimity, we accommodate ourselves to the way things are rather than endlessly trying to accommodate the world to our desires. It's actually easier. This year I taught in Burma with Greg, and uh, Jesse was our uh, manager. So when we got there, they were um, constructing a new building, which is not an uncommon experience in Burma. Um, it was quite loud, and they told uh, Greg that um, once the retreat started, that the construction would be suspended during the retreat time, um, our three-week retreat. So the... Um, Retreat starts and the construction continues. And, um, you know, Greg and I, you know, we'd have this conversation every uh, day or two. Should we ask the Sayadaw about this? <laughs> or, which would be right, trying to accommodate um, the world to our desires? Or should we just work with it, let it be, let the yogis work with it? And we chose over and over again to just let it be, to let... Um, to, to, that the practice then was, how do we work with those sounds? How do we find peace, even though the world is not going the way we want it to go, even though there's unpleasant sound? They did stop one day, <laughs> the full moon day, took a break. They also stopped during lunchtime, um, and the building was right 
smack up against the dining room. And I think that perhaps that's what the Sayadaw meant, was that they would stop while we were in the lunchroom. We never did ask. We never did find out. Equanimity doesn't mean passivity. I don't want you to get the idea that it means that we never um, uh, try to make change in the world. No. Sometimes there are things that need to be changed or that it could be helpful to be changed or um, we can try to make sometimes make conditions better for ourselves. It doesn't mean not doing any of that. But it means accepting that even with our best attempts, life with its flowing change will continue. It's not going to be perfect. Another year in um, Burma, I love to tell Burma stories. <laughs> um, and by the way, sometimes I talk about the challenges of Burma. It's actually a very wonderful place to practice and a very it's one of my favorite places in the world, so I don't want to mis um, guide you at all in that. Um, but uh, practice isn't as cozy as it is in the States. It tends to be a little more challenging. So a number of years ago when I was there practicing with um, my teacher training group, uh, they have different little huts, right? And so I had this little hut. It was on this ridge, and it had a beautiful view. And yet the smoke from the village came right up to it, (laughs) and um, it was really hot. But it didn't have any bugs because it was exposed. And then my friend Patricia, she had this kuti back in this ravine. It was very cool, but there were bugs, lots of bugs. No smoke, however, but no view. You know, so sometimes we would like compare our kutis, and we were like, um, we came to the conclusion that there isn't a perfect kuti, <laughs> and that's pretty much how life is. Equanimity is: can we um, accept that and um, stay connected? and unconditional acceptance. So the good news is that equanimity is a quality that we can develop. Now usually when we think of equanimity, we start by trying to develop it by um, just telling ourselves to be accepting. You've probably tried it, right? So there's some uh, something going on that is unpleasant, um, and we just say, okay, I'm going to accept this now. (laughs) Doesn't work very well, right? (laughs) That's more like a fake equanimity. When we try to um, mm, pretend uh, that we feel differently than we do. A number of years ago, I was traveling um, in the Northwest and... um, I had been traveling for about 16 days, and I was ready to go home. So I got to the airport, and uh, through some unfortunate misunderstanding, uh, it was determined that I, I wasn't going to be allowed to board the airplane. And it was the last flight of the day, and um, I knew that it meant I was going to have to find a place to stay in Portland and uh, you know, not get home till the next night. And... I was really tired. I'd been traveling for a while and just finished teaching a retreat. I really wanted to get home. And so um, 
I was unhappy, <laughs> quite unhappy. And so, I, you know, feeling um, and angry because I felt like the airlines had, um, I hadn't been treated entirely fairly. And, um, and then it was like this little voice said in, to me one year, shouldn't you be a little bit more equanimous about this? You're a Dharma teacher after all. <laughs> <laughs> and then this other little voice said, this is what I'm feeling. I'm not equanimous. <laughs> and um, it was a really, for me, it was an interesting experience and in, like watching how um, we can kind of oppress ourselves with ideas about how we should feel and how it should be. And really leaning towards um, just allowing myself to feel what I was feeling. And eventually it passed and I figured out what to do for that night and got rebooked on a flight the next night and it was fine. But the truth was I wasn't feeling equanimous. So the, the only way I know to develop equanimity is what I would call emotional honesty. So um, honest, honesty about what's really going on, what we're really feeling a connection to the truth of our experience in order to learn. The Buddha said that with careful attention and wise view, we can learn. Wise view means knowing how to look. And basically it means looking and understanding that all that arises will pass away. So back to impermanence careful attention or mindfulness and wise view. Uh, So a number of years ago also I was teaching um, in in the Northwest and um, one day, so I I had, we used to have when I go there, we had this, um, I would go on a day early because it's a long flight and uh, I like to be refreshed for the opening night. So during that day, we had some traditions with the people there, and one of them was they had this, these great um, packages of, of Giardelli brownies, brownie mix, Giardelli. Is that how you say it? Something like that. You guys know what I mean. Um, really, really good brownies. Best I've ever had. And so we would make them and you know share them with the staff and the yogis or whatever. And it was the Friday tradition. So one time I made the, um, a batch of brownies. And um, so I, I took one of the brownies. And I was taking it back to my little cottage to eat later. Well, <laughs> the brownie was really good. <laughs> I wasn't paying a lot of attention. And um, I ate the brownie, right? So I got curious about this. It's like, wow, you know, I really didn't want to eat that brownie and I wound up eating it. So what happened there? So the next day I I said, I'm going to do this experience mindfully. I'm going to, so the next day I took a brownie. I was taking it back to my um, cottage and I watched my mind. And so desire would arise, desire for the brownie and it would get really strong and then it would pass away, it would leave, it would end. And then a little while later, the desire for the brownie would come up again. I would watch it, and it would 
leave. And I didn't eat that brownie. And the lesson, the, the teaching was to, to really look at the nature of the wanting itself and to see that wanting, right, can arise. It can pass away. We don't have to be imprisoned by it. We don't have to believe it. That's the freedom. So the freedom isn't getting rid of wanting. The freedom isn't also indulging every want we want, right? The, the freedom is to see clearly the nature of wanting. Or if, you're, if your thing is reactivity and I'm not wanting, to see clearly the nature of not wanting. So we don't have to believe it. We learn that we don't have to believe it. This is huge. We think we have to believe the wanting and the not wanting in our minds and our hearts. So bondage is being at the mercy of the wanting mind. And freedom means that even if desire wanting comes up, there can be flexibility and choice. Not a repression of wanting and not being a slave to wanting. And the more we do this, the more it really starts to sink in. One teacher described it as like, let's say you have a fabric, a piece of fabric, and you poke pinholes into it. So at first that fabric is going to be um, opaque. You can't see through. But when you poke enough pinholes, you can start to see through the fabric. I think of the poking the pinholes, the mindfulness. So we have desire. We poke the pinholes enough, and then we start to be able to see through the desire. We see that we don't have to be enslaved to it. But this takes being willing to connect with it and to be emotionally honest or honestly emotional um, with the truth of our experience. And when we can do this, we find that there's um, so much more flexibility and lightness and spaciousness in our hearts and our minds. Here's a story that um, describes this well. I've read it a few times for those of you who've been here before. It's from Sharon Salzberg's book, A Heart as Wide as the World. We all like pleasant experiences and are fortunate to enjoy them, but if we become lost in attachment, then enjoyment inevitably turns to clinging and then we suffer. At a Buddhist Christian conference I attended at Gethsemane Monastery in Kentucky, His Holiness the Dalai Lama was speaking about a tour of the monastery he'd been given earlier that day. He began by saying that he was quite impressed with the monastery being able to support itself through the manufacture of cheeses and fruitcakes. Then in the midst of this formal presentation with television cameras rolling, the Dalai Lama said, I was presented with a piece of homemade cheese, which was very good, but really I wanted some cake. (laughs) He laughed uproariously and repeated, it was so unfortunate, really I was hoping that someone would offer me some cake, but no one did. (laughs) His childlike candor was wonderful with nothing manipulative about it. 
Clearly, he was quite happy with a piece of fruitcake, and some part of his state of happiness was the very ability to laugh at his desire for cake, as well as being able to speak about it unabashedly before dignitaries of two religions and a television audience. (laughs) Do we relate to our wanting like that? We can. We can learn to hold it so much more lightly. So the degree to which we make peace with change is the degree to which we can be free. Uchiyama Roshi called practice an active participation in loss. We see how each moment flows by. It's poignant. We find that we can take our refuge with equanimity. We take our refuge in our ability to be with that flow. So it's not about getting rid of anything. It's really about um, connecting deeply with all of life. A number of years ago, I, um, I decided that practice in the United States was getting just, it was getting a little easy. Um, too comfortable, and um, I wanted to be stretched a little bit, so I wanted to learn. I wanted to keep learning, and um, so I went to Burma to do this first time. I went to this uh, monastery, and I have a very sensitive body, a very sensitive system. I'm very easily influenced by the environment, and um, so it was it was risky for me. It was, I hadn't been in Asia for many, many years. And uh, so I arrived at the monastery and um, was shown my kuti, my little hut. And uh, in, in the hut, there was a big um, a wardrobe that was full of mothballs. Mothballs are not really good for my system. So, um, so we tried to get the, um, the uh, wardrobe out of the little kuti, and then I pulled my back out while I was doing it. And then um, the smoke was coming up from the village, and I have a slight asthma. (laughs) And then um, the place where we were doing the seminar was a new building, and they just painted the whole floor with um, oil-based cement paint, which is like... (laughs) I had, I had a lot, I, I actually got sick many, many years ago from that, so it was like not so great for me. And, um, oh yeah, the first night, they had this ordination ceremony. This area is just wonderful. There's all these monasteries. It is, I love Burma. This is, um, um, <laughs> all these pagodas and monasteries, and that night they had a, um, ordination ceremony. And so in Burma, when they have parties or celebrations, they, they have big cars with loudspeakers on them because most people don't own um, you know, stereo systems. So they broadcast, basically, so everybody can hear. <laughs> they broadcast the music. So the first night, this went on most of the night. I think maybe between 2 and 4 a.m. they took a break. And um, so I was like... Mm. 
I started to panic. I was like, oh my God, I am not going to survive here. And um, also it was five airplane rides to get there, so five to go back. And um, no email. And, you know, like I couldn't really, really easily change five airplane tickets. So um, I uh, was experiencing some panic. And... Um, so I sat down and had a little talk with myself. I said, if this whole three weeks is just about learning with panic, about panic, I'll, I'll sign up. Okay, that's what I'm going to do. And I got interested in panic. And it was interesting. And it did help my practice a lot. I learned that I could do panic. And um, a lot more freedom, but I don't have to avoid panic. So this is what I mean when I say that practice is about turning towards dukkha, whatever our challenge is, wherever there's some sense of, um, of contraction or limitation, that's where we get to practice. That's our edge. That's where... Um, you know, when we practice at our edge, that expands the limits of what we can hold with poise and grace and equanimity. So sometimes um, we'll be working. So we work with, so equanimity comes with looking at our, our working with our reactivity to change our what's happening. So reactivity in the form of holding on, clinging, grasping, our reactivity in the form of pushing away, not wanting. And sometimes it's a gross level like panic, right? Very obvious, very in our face. Um, reactivity, aversion, panic is a, a strong form of aversion, right? And sometimes it's really subtle. Sometimes it's just this inclining of the mind. We can just feel this inclining of the mind and some sense of the spaciousness um, contracting. So sometimes it's with pleasant experiences. So let's say um, the sun is setting. So we go outside to watch the sunset, right? And there's some level that um, we're just watching the sunset. We're enjoying it. It's pleasant. And then we can feel sometimes that, the, that there'll be this sense of wanting to enjoy the experience. And there's some sense of, like we can feel how the experience narrows because of that and how there's separation from it. And so we can turn and notice that wanting and what happens when we notice it? We're really curious about that. What happens when awareness meets that reactivity? Sometimes, if the mindfulness is strong, it, um, it falls away. So we can be with the sunset, enjoying, wanting it to last, or wanting, enjoying, enjoy it, turning to the wanting. Maybe it drops away. And then we see actually that we connect more deeply with the sunset. So we're curious about this. But basically the way out is through. <laughs> it's through um, getting to know the wanting and the aversion very intimately. 
the gross levels, the subtle levels. Basically, the practice is we just see over the years more and more subtle levels. And then as we, um, not that the gross levels never come back. I don't want to give that, um, um, I don't want to mislead you in that way. But um, as, as we're able to um, strengthen our mindfulness in the face of the wanting and the not wanting, and they begin to lose their power over us, there's more spaciousness, freedom, equanimity in the mind and heart. So the other place that we can get interested in this, and we'll, maybe we'll talk more about this tomorrow morning, but we can look at also how um, what the Buddha called feeling tone uh, conditions, wanting and not wanting. Um, so the feeling tone is pleasant, unpleasant, or neutrality of an experience. And we can start to become interested in how the pleasant feeling tone without mindfulness conditions grasping and the unpleasant feeling tone without mindfulness conditions aversion, and the neutral feeling tone without mindfulness conditions spacing out. So we can get really interested in this chain of conditioning, and we can start to question whether pleasant has to have grasping with it, and whether aversion has to have unpleasant with it. They're so um, deeply um, entwined usually, but we actually start to see that there can be pleasantness, we can be with it, and there doesn't have to be grasping, or there can be aversion, we can be with it, and there doesn't have to, I mean, there can be unpleasantness, and we can be with it, and there doesn't have to be aversion. Lots of freedom there, too. One time I was sitting in this hall, and um, they started to mow the lawn during the uh, sitting period. I'm sure you've had this experience, some of you, or at, at some point, and um, so I was I I, I um, didn't like that, and uh, so I you know the story started going through my mind. Oh, I was having such a nice sitting. Why did they start the lawn mowing? They should um, do that during walking periods and um, lots of aversion, right? So then I heard the sound of the lawnmower. I noticed that it was unpleasant. And I noticed that the aversion, all the hoopla was just because it was unpleasant. And it stopped right there, just unpleasant. Did not have to fall into aversion. So we can get interested in that. And that also strengthens the quality of equanimity, seeing that, that, that they don't have to be married, pleasant and grasping or unpleasant and aversion. Hmm, so little time. Um, So the fourth 
noble truth, the truth of the path that has to be developed. Uh, three major parts. The first part is about ethical conduct, non-harming in the world. The middle part is about uh, meditation practice, concentration, mindfulness, effort. And the last part is about wisdom and understanding, skillful intention, wise view. So we've been talking about different aspects of that this, um, this whole retreat. Basically, these together help support the conditions that lead to the freedom of the heart and mind. So sometimes people have this fear that meditation practice um, or that equanimity or peace is kind of flat. It's going to make us unalive somehow. But if we meet folks who um, are deeply realized, uh, that's usually the last word we would use to describe them, unalive. There's an actual vibrant joyfulness and a sense of deep wisdom and a sense of um, boundless compassion or love. That's what's left when we um, are able to uh, see deeply through grasping and aversion. Wisdom, love, joy. I'd like to end with a story that I think describes this a little bit. Again, this is from um, one of Sharon Salzberg's book, books. One of my teachers, Nyosho Ken Rinpoche, called Kempo by his students, was one of the thousands of Tibetans who fled their country in 1959 because of the Chinese invasion of Tibet and the terrible religious persecution that followed. In Tibet, Kempo had been a high lama and an heir to all the sacred teachings of the different schools and lineages of Tibetan Buddhism. During a retreat he taught in the United States many years after he left Tibet, he began telling us the story of how he had left his family behind, not knowing if he would ever see them again, as he set out for India with about 70 other people. One night as the group traveled through the mountains, Chinese soldiers ambushed them, showering them with machine gun bullets. Only five people survived the attack and escaped on foot through the treacherous Himalayan passes to India. Soon after arriving, Kempo went to Calcutta and found a place to sleep in a Buddhist monastery. He spoke to us about begging for pennies on the streets of Calcutta just so he could have a cup of tea to drink. It was heart-wrenching to hear Kempo speak about these traumatic circumstances, the Chinese persecution, the humiliation, torture, and death of so many Tibetans, the sorrow of leaving loved ones behind, the slaughter of Kempo's companions, the sheer physical brutality of the escape. The image of this teacher, whom I love so much, begging for pennies, deprived of all physical comforts, was overwhelming for me to hear. As I began to cry, I noticed that several other people in the room were also crying. Just at that point, Kempo finished up his story of begging in Calcutta with the phrase, and I was very happy. My mind came to an abrupt stop. Very happy? Did he say very happy? I could scarcely believe what he had said. 
The man was bereft, poverty-stricken, a refugee. How could he say he was very happy? As Kempo went on, he talked about being sustained through all these events and sudden turns of fate by the truth of the Buddha's teachings. He had gone from being an esteemed religious teacher in Tibet with great distinction and honor to finding himself suddenly begging in the hot streets of Calcutta surrounded by poverty and hopelessness. Then later on, he went from the crowds of India to the United States where he was again received as a highly revered teacher. So many unexpected ups and downs. Who can describe them, Kempo said. Isn't life like a series of dreams within a vast dreamlike mirage? After his talk, my mind was still reeling. Every so often, if we are fortunate, we catch a glimpse of a quality of happiness or freedom in another human being that is not bound to conditions, that sustains them through even the most extraordinary suffering. Kempo's intense love and devotion for the Buddha's teachings had borne the fruit of this deep happiness right in the midst of his inconceivable challenges. Let's sit for a minute. May we suffer effectively. May our practice bear the fruits of deepening equanimity, wisdom, and love. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.